0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? What's everyone seeing outside? It's pretty hot here in the Midwest again, back up into the 90s, but a lot of really great fall blooming plants out there, so get outside, enjoy what's left of the growing season while you still have time. All right, what do I have for you this week? Pretty awesome interview, if I do say so myself. I was really excited to finally be able to talk to my guest, this was another one that we uh, kind of flirted with the idea for a few months back, and then, uh, you know, fieldwork and everything that gets involved when you're a working scientist slowed everything down. But finally, we both had some downtime in our schedules, and we got to talk. So joining us today is Amy Hruska. She is a graduate student getting her PhD at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, and she works on seed dispersal. Now, you have actually heard her hinted at before on this podcast back when we talked to Dave DeVinny about ginseng. Uh, he cited some of her work when she was a master's student, but now she's working in Hawaii, which is a really unique system, as you're going to find out, uh, for the unfortunate reason that human activities, especially settlers that came to Hawaii and brought with them rats and pigs and diseases... Uh, have wiped out a lot of the native birds and a lot of those were functioning as seed dispersers for all of the unique Hawaiian flora and that's what Amy is looking at. It's a really interesting topic and uh, some of the things you're going to hear about are a bit surprising. I mean, I know they were for me. But before we get to that, I want to handle a few orders of business. First off, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little bit more in return, you can even get yourself a producer credit on the show. Now that is fancy. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Alan, Holly, Clifton, Katharina, Shane, Amy, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, Troy, margie laura and mark i love that that list is growing it really means the world to me and it's helping out a whole heck of a lot podcasting gets a little pricey from week to week and i'm looking to make a lot of upgrades in the in defense of plants world so every little bit helps if monthly donations aren't your thing you can give a one-time donation just head over to indefense plants.com scroll down on the right hand side of the screen and click that donate button And if money is totally not your thing, which I completely understand, at the very least, consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to download it. Reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you, the listener, but they help me reach a wider audience. And the goal of In Defense of Plants is to spread the love of botany around the world, especially to those people that might not have botanical training. And with your reviews, we can do that, because reviews help all of the podcatchers make recommendations to new listeners. All right, enough rambling for me. Let's head on over to my conversation with Amy. I hope you enjoy. Awesome. All right, well, Amy Harushka, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, Sorry, there's a moquette in the background. <laughs> um, so, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa studying forest regeneration. Um, I basically got my start in plants during my undergraduate degree at the University of Dayton, where I worked with Ryan McEwen. Um, from there, I moved to West Virginia and studied the seed dispersal of American ginseng, which led me here where I now Look at how um, dispersal limitation could be affecting forest regeneration here in Hawaii.
0: Um, nice, that's a fun yeah. trajectory. So you went yeah. from ginseng on the mainland to uh, seed dispersal on uh, a tropical islands. Roosters yes. maybe help you, but uh, <laughs> so it's interesting. Your work has actually got honorable mention on the podcast before uh, in the ginseng episode when I talked to Dave Davini. And, uh, just for those that probably haven't listened to that episode, do you want to start with that? And then we can kind of use that as the actual segue as it did in your life, uh, for our podcast conversation.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's so going during, on with ginseng? What's going on with ginseng? So during yeah. my master's, um, well, basically I ended up being very fortunate to work with, uh, Dr. Jim McGraw, who's been studying ginseng, uh, probably like almost 15 years now. Damn. Um, And so there's this nice long-term data set looking at 30 different populations of ginseng over multiple years. And so there was a really nice demography of the life trajectory of ginseng and all these different populations and how the populations are functioning. But we still largely didn't understand where dispersal was going. So the seed life phase in a plant is really a black box, right? We think of plants as being sessile, and sitting still, but it's the seed part where they get to actually really move around and colonize areas. And so it's actually really important in terms of a stage in plant population dynamics. And we didn't know how this plant, if it was at all moving around, we knew that in the literature and we, from witnessing in the field, that it looked mostly like gravity, but it seems really weird for a plant to put all this effort to make these gorgeous red berries and not have them be dispersed. So I became really interested in what was going on. And so I kind of picked up that aspect of the demography and we had used game cams and put these game cameras on the plant just to see what was interacting with ginseng. Um, With the hypothesis being that it would be birds or small mammals in the eastern deciduous forest, given that they're small red berries with small seeds. Well, um, what we found were that thrushes were mostly interacting with them. And we had some really great shots of berries just right in the mouth of these thrushes, mainly wood thrushes. Um, And then also, we had a lot of small mammal interactions with the fruit. So on the game cameras, lots of chipmunks. And in the field, we would get damage to the fruit and seeds from either voles or mice, something that could be really close or on top of the inflorescence without knocking over the plant. Interesting. So, yeah. um, Basically, I did feeding studies then with small (laughs) mammals and thrushes and found that wood thrushes were well thrush species again wood thrushes being the most common that we saw interacting with it dispersing so they would eat the fruit they gulp it down whole and then they regurgitate the seeds and the seeds come out looking almost like you'd hand clean them and 100 percent viable afterward so dispersers. (laughs)
0: That's not the end I expected them to come out of. That's interesting that they're puking them up instead of passing them in their feces like we expect most bird dispersed seeds to be.
1: Well, with songbirds, they can go either way, which is interesting because it's kind of what I thought too. But then I read the literature and actually had a fun little bet with Jim that they would (laughs) regurgitate. So it's based on the bird's morphology as to whether or not they defecate regurgitate so if the seed is over a certain size and you know just kind of hangs out in the crop they'll just regurgitate it instead of passing it through but if it's a small enough seed they'll pass it through so
0: interesting very different compared to you know what you'd expect out of eating
1: (laughs) yeah um and it's really fascinating they just kind of like open and close their beak and out falls a seed and from a seed's perspective it's in the bird a shorter time span um but the goal is still the same where now they don't have pulp on the seeds so it's more likely to germinate whereas pulp often um inhibits germination of seeds
0: right yeah that's why you don't just plant a berry you have to remove the seeds and clean them off so they don't rot but you know in any in any case whether they're puking it or defecating it it's it's getting away from the parent plant yes cool so how do you go from studying seed dispersal oh in an understory forest setting here in North America to studying seed dispersal on a tropical island? Um, you know, for those that might not see the commonality there, you know, is it's more about the system or is it more about specific species for you?
1: Um, well, you get really lucky um, <laughs> is how that works. And it's kind of just become this field that really fascinates me. So it's not necessarily um location-based, um, or geographic-based, or species-based. It's this phenomenon and how applicable we can see different um, trends across different systems. I found this research position with the Hawaii Vine Project. It was posted as I was finishing up my master's, and it just seemed too good to be true to yeah. go to these isolated islands and get to study a phenomenon um, that I had recently, relatively recently become interested in. It's almost like Darwin going to the Galapagos is kind of how (laughs) I compare it, but I get to go to Hawaii. And it's a little bit more dire of a situation because what I actually study is whether or not non-native birds make up for this uh, service that native birds would have been providing here in Hawaii. But um, yeah, it's still the same phenomenon. And in fact, in tropical areas, it's thought that getting away from the parent plant is even more important than the temperate areas. Um, hmm. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with the jansen connell hypothesis, the Janssen-Connell model, as I like to call it, because there's quite a bit of research suggesting that this action getting away from the parent plant is important. And the whole Janssen-Connell hypothesis predicts that it's important for maintaining species diversity in the tropics. We have not in Hawaii, but elsewhere in the world in the tropics, there's a huge diversity. And with each parent plant comes a different, set of parasite load fungal load seed predators that are very specific to that species so getting away from a conspecific is really important if you're a small seedling so you don't have to battle all of these seeds and on top of that then you don't have to compete with your parent plants
0: or all your parent plants diseases and germs that they would potentially be more than easily spreading to you if you grew underneath your your mom you know But getting away, then, you know, not only does that allow new species to end up in new areas, it it also protects them, as you said, against disease. But, um, you know, in doing this, you brought up a few points there that might be worth talking about. So why is it that your system right now works on non-native birds? What's going on with the native fruit dispersing birds in Hawaii that means native or uh, invasive species are more apt for your system?
1: So historically, because Hawaii is so isolated, we'll go through a little geology lesson, I guess. Everything would have had it dispersed here by itself, right?
0: Mm. So
1: you get um, what's called disharmony on islands where things that are present elsewhere, maybe in the tropics, aren't necessarily present here because there's this extra filter of dispersing here. Um, So with our plant species, we have a higher proportion of our forest flora that's fleshy fruited because on islands it's that the trend I guess you could say I'm sure on Carl Quist, this was one of his big hypotheses that you become fleshy fruited. You evolve to be fleshy fruited on the Island. Um, so your seeds don't end up dispersing into the ocean because a heavier seed stays put. Hmm. Um, and then here in Hawaii, we have no reptiles made it um, no mammals other than the hoary bat made it to the islands. So the primary dispersers of seeds would have been birds eating these fleshy fruits and dispersing the seeds um so that brings us to date where we across the islands um either don't have fruit eating birds anymore on the islands which is the case here on Oahu where i do work or we have them but they're functionally extinct or kind of just hanging on and maintaining their population which is the case on the Big Island, which our Hawaiian thrush is pretty much the only native species that's in any kind of population abundance to be doing these
0: dispersal services. So, you know, uh, the cliche of uh, Hawaii kind of being the poster child for both invasive species and localized extinctions, I mean, that's what's driving this question of, are these introduced or non-native species taking up the role after, you know, what if Malarian parasites or avian pox or something got introduced and actually wiped out the native seed dispersers there right
1: and okay. we have malaria here so we have mosquitoes and some of our birds seem to have immunity as the word that comes to mind but that's not quite right um to malaria um so we see at lower elevations some of our native birds their nectivorous honey creepers like the Apapana and amakihi but mostly you can track the mosquito line and see the loss of our native birds wow. um, with the mosquito line. So malaria has been a big problem for birds as as human colonization and the introduction of rats to Hawaii. Rats eat bird eggs and depredate the birds. So um, with the introduction of rats, we've lost birds. Ugh. Yes. Hawaii, while the flora is phenomenal just in itself for having arrived here. Um, It is the extinction capital of the world and also a great place to study endangered species, extinct species, introduced species, and all these different novel uh, interactions that come about with such a changing environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, whether we like it or not, Hawaii has been turned into this giant natural experiment that can really help us understand how these systems play out, especially in isolated conditions like that. But, you know, there's a lot of applicability there. But I think it's interesting, especially since, you know, you had mentioned, uh, on islands like these, you tend to get fleshier fruits or bird-dispersed fruits because, A, if you have a wind-dispersed fruit, there's a good chance you're blown off the island. You have to stay put. And then B, I would assume that on some level, uh, you know, if seabirds are able to make it out or birds in general are able to make it to these islands, they would be bringing with them stuff in their guts. So maybe, you know, there's already that filter effect of birds just bringing fruits there of plants that have pulpy fruits, right? So when you remove the, the dominant seed disperser from the system you either leave these niches completely vacant, so to speak, depending on where you stand on the whole niche idea, or you have, you know, like you said, these other players that have since been introduced coming in to take the, the, the role there, uh, you know, without agency being a play. So where what are you finding, at least? And and what, what kind of birds, I guess, first off, are we talking about here? What's been introduced that could take these roles?
1: So it's part of what this whole project has been looking at. Um, and early on when I started, I started looking at the networks just to see who would be dispersing what. And, uh, so hopefully publications abound. So I don't want to give too many, um, (laughs) spoiler alerts, but the type of birds that we see in the forest here are things that we see kind of worldwide succeeding as these non-native species. Um, we see red vented bulbils, red whiskered bulbils, um, red billed leithrics, Japanese white eye, white eyes are prolific, um, they're really neat birds. Actually, they (laughs) do a lot of different things in the ecosystem like pollination and seed dispersal and insectivory. Um, So those are mainly the four species that we see um, ingesting fruit. But we also have spotted doves, zebra doves, the common minor bird. These are birds that are more in open areas or more disturbed forests. And then we have different finches and things, but they're not really free averse birds. So not as interesting for this very
0: specific question,
1: but still interesting in terms of their interactions.
0: Wow. It sounds like you almost have more non native birds on Hawaii than you do native birds.
1: Um, on Oahu, that is absolutely the case, I would say. Damn. Um, in the forest, our only native birds at our sites would be the Apapane and the Amakihi and those are at our higher elevation sites. So maybe I should back up and kind of tell you our methods of how we're looking at this question.
0: Um, Yeah, definitely. Because I think, uh, you know, as easy as seed dispersal sounds to understand for people like, you know, oh, I get it. Birds disperse the seeds, you find out where the birds are pooping. And there you go, you know how far they've dispersed. It's actually trickier than that, right?
1: Yeah, it can be. Um, (laughs) Again, it's a really black box of a question, because you have seed movement, and now you have animal interactions. And if You've ever tried to work with an animal, which I hadn't prior to doing (laughs) seed dispersal. They never do what you expect them to do. It's pretty much the rule of thumb. And I always thought that that was the case in ecology in general. But it's an added layer of just, I couldn't have seen this coming. But here with our overall project, and I can talk about more how I fit in as a botanist, as we go on, we have seven different sites on Oahu. And Oahu is arguably the most human-disturbed or degraded island. Like I said, we have no more native fruit eating birds and so with the overall project we have seven different sites and they range in elevation and elevation is correlated kind of to native plant diversity so at these low elevations they're pretty much all non-native species non-native birds with non-native plants what's going on as you move up in elevation across our sites you get more of a mixed community where we have restoration efforts and things happening that maintain native plants And ending with like our seventh site, which is on Mount Ka'ala, which is the tallest point here in Oahu, which is our most native forest, looking at these interactions. So it's really interesting because we get a variety of precipitation gradient, elevation gradient, and then we get these community gradients of all non branching up to as native as it could be on this island. So in that regard, it really does show this complexity. And we have multiple different graduate students and researchers I think we have, we have six principal investigators, including my advisor, Don Drake, who is also a plant ecologist, and Janelle Sperry, as you know, at Illinois. Okay. And then we have three, four other graduate students other than myself, um, one studying the telemetry of the birds, so where are they moving, how are they moving in the forest habitats to help us understand that aspect of the dispersal. We have people looking at the aviaries and what the specific behaviors are with the birds, how long the seeds are in the system. We have um, another graduate student looking at, can we use conspecific attraction um, to bring in birds to native plants to disperse native seeds? So just a lot of different things going on. And my role is the only graduate student who's a plant ecologist is trying to figure (laughs) out what all of this means in terms of forest regeneration and what we can kind of expect the native plants to actually do in response
0: to all of these behaviors. Wow. Very uh, multifaceted approach to trying to understand this. But I mean, at the end of the day, you have forest health as the main goal here and understanding what regeneration is going to be because without seedlings, without seeds getting to new spots, y- you don't have forests in the next you know few decades, right?
1: Yeah. And we have a lot of other problems here in Hawaii, like rapid ohia death, which is also threatening the forest. But um, this is a pretty big issue especially for management. So with my dissertation, what I'm sort of mostly focused on or interested are these common species. So about half of our flora is endangered. And so we spend a lot of time and resources into trying to maintain endangered plants. And looking at the seed dispersal question, I'm interested in whether or not we can predict with seed size, which is correlated to dispersal behavior, if Things that look common now at the adult stage are actually not reproducing at the seedling stage because they can't be dispersed even by our non-native birds. Right. So our non-native birds, um, at best, would incompletely compensate for our native birds. They're smaller than, say, our Hawaiian crow would have been, and our Hawaiian thrush would have been. So the range of seeds that they can disperse is smaller. So you mm-hmm. would see this shift in the flora of things that would be successful to smaller-seeded things, which would be smaller-seeded natives. Our common invasives tend to be smaller seeded. And then we'd have relictual, larger seeded things that may not look like they need help now. Because when you're out there in the forest trying to triage endangered species, you're not necessarily looking for these immature seedlings or immature individuals that aren't reproducing fruit. And that's no fault of anybody. It's just time and resources. Check. We see it. Let's move on, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's what's tough. I mean, when you think about the timescales in which plants operate, especially longer-lived species, you know, I I always see this come, uh, come up when you talk about deer, the effects of deer in eastern United States here, where you can go out into a forest and you say, oh, this forest looks healthy. There's plenty of big trees. But then you stop and you go, well, are there any young trees? And you go, oh. No, the deer have eaten them all. But in your case, they're not even getting the chance to get eaten in a lot of cases. They're just, there's a good chance that they're not making it there. So, um, you know, what are these common species? What kind of plants are you looking at?
1: Common species. Um, So a lot of cool ones. Um, <laughs> The one that I'm currently really trying to set up different experiments with is Pipteris albitus, which is a mamaki, which is known for making tea here in Hawaii, but it's also something in the urticaceae. So you can think of stinging nettle and all the mm. nettles back on the East Coast. Here it's woody. It's like a woody shrub, not an herb, Whoa. And it produces these cool aggregate fruits where the seeds are still keens, but now they have these white, pulpy, fleshy accessory to it. So mm. birds definitely like it. And we have seen native birds eating or non-native birds eating it. It's smaller seeded, so it kind of fits. And it's... Mm, I think I may have mentioned it. It's kind of our weediest native. Like it does the best in these open, sunny habitats and it's quick to grow. So, in that regard, it's really interesting because a lot of things here are slow and we think pretty specific in their needs. And here, Pipteris can kind of just do well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, looking at how important this dispersal actually is for Pipteris. So, I'm setting up, I'm currently right now in my dissertation setting up these experiments testing that Janssen-Connell where I see fleshy-fruited things and then I depulp them and I leave them in pulp and I put them in high densities and low densities and I put them under and away from the parent plants just to try and figure out how important is dispersal. So it could be that they're being dispersed and they're smaller seeded but it's weedy and dispersal is not the most important thing. It just happens to sometimes be beneficial, which would kind of be, you know, oh, well, that's sad. This is definitely not a species to worry about. Well, maybe not sad, but right. check we don't necessarily have to worry about it. Other species that I'm working with are species of lobeliads, which in the Hawaiian floor are super charismatic. Um, you might think of a lobeliad as wind dispersed, which its ancestor came here and was. But this is one of these massive, it is the biggest radiation in terms of plants here in Hawaii, adaptive radiation. And they develop fleshy fruitiness, particularly in the forest. So we have some species that are still wind dispersed, but then we have others that now have fleshy fruits. And they're also weakly woody. So you would think of a small herb maybe back on the East Coast, but now you have these weakly woody shrubs that grow probably six or seven feet at least. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, they're really cool. I like to post pictures of them on my (laughs) Twitter and they, get, they have really small seeds that can pass through rats. And we know that the birds can eat them piecemeal. The fruits are too big to be eaten whole, some of them. Um, so I'm setting up species with one of the genera, Clermontia cacchiana. And then another one of the genera is Cyanangustifolia. And again, these are super charismatic plants here. They have beautiful curved flowers that the Hawaiian honeycreepers would have um, their bills adapted to for getting nectar out of, so you have these plants with these awesome flowers, these birds that are getting nectar, and now these plants are also producing fleshy fruits that would have been dispersed um, by birds. And so Clermontia has little fruits; they look like pumpkins, probably ooh five to ten centimeters in diameter, with thousands of seeds inside of them. So you just wow. have to eat some of it to disperse the seeds. Um, and then Stenogastopholia has smaller berries. It could maybe be, eaten whole. Um, that'll be interesting in our aviaries to see what their behavior with them is. And in each genus, there's, in Clermontia, I think, oh, I've, I'm going to butcher this, <laughs> 70-something species? and No, 22, and then Cl- uh, Cyania has like 78 species. So huge radiation, all coming wow. from one ancestor, and these are genu- genera that are endemic just in Hawaii. So you're not going to see a Clermontia outside of Hawaii. You're not going to see a cyanide outside of Hawaii. Um, so right now those species come to mind because those are the ones that I'm actively working with. Other species, Diaspyrus sandwicensis, is one that I'm interested. That's going to be a little unique because the fruits get depredated by rats long before. So this is in the ebony family. It's related to persimmons.
0: Yeah, I didn't think Hawaii would have a persimmon, but that's interesting.
1: We do. And on this island, we have two. We have Diospyros sanusensis and Diospyros hilbrandii. They're beautiful trees. Their leaves under our hand lens, of course, as a botanist, they're really cool and like <laughs> webbed. And then they have these beautiful fruits that go from yellow to red. And we see them getting just depredated by rats when they're yellow and still on the tree. So to work with this will be a battle against rats. So we can kind of. Well, I can kind of almost hypothesize that that's going to be the most important factor for the regeneration of that species, is that seeds just don't even make it.
0: Right. These little rodents are getting up there and eating them before they even have a chance to even fall off the tree, let alone be dispersed.
1: Yeah. So the rats here are really interesting because they're arboreal. So they like to be in the trees. So they're not what you would normally speak.
0: This isn't your New York City trash rat. This is some weird invasive from Well, We're talking
1: the Pacific black rat is okay yeah um really common non-native we do have some norway rats which are what you might expect but they're more in town so we have rattus rattus um i'm blanking so yeah we have black rats the pacific rat we have three dominant species of rats the two that i just listed black rats and pacific rats are the most common and they're smaller than what you'd expect for a rat you know you think these big happy fat rats like you're describing in new york and these Actually, are cuter and kind of look more like mice. I'm partial to rodents. I've After working with chipmunks, then coming here and seeing rats um, play on the telephone wire outside of my apartment. They're actually really fun social animals and interesting. It's just a shame that they ended up here and like yeah. to eat our seeds. Um, but yeah, so they're up in the forest and they're eating fruits and stuff in the forest. So you kind of have to be careful walking around because rat traps tend to be on the trees. So you don't want to like stick your hand and get in a snap trap. Um, wow. Or a good nature trap. Well, that's a little harder because it's more of a piston. But yeah, control efforts for rats are one of the most important things to do in the forest. The first being fencing a forest off from feral pigs. So we have feral pigs and there's no hope for native forests unless you can get a fence around it because the feral wow. pigs will just dig everything up, as you might imagine. Yeah. So that kind of, I guess, segues into the other part that I'm interested in all of this is how well restoration is impacting these regeneration efforts. So I actually look at two of our sites which are these restoration sites and in one of them probably about 10 years ago they helicoptered a wood chipper in and just removed a ton of strawberry guava strawberry guava cidium catalianum is a huge invasive here mm. um it grows in these massive monocultures it can grow colonially um, the seeds can be easily dispersed by birds and there's no real shade underneath the plant so nothing really grows once you get one of these dense stands So to remove it, they helicoptered a wood chipper in and removed a bunch of strawberry guava and left this open gap. And so I'm interested in what actually disperses into this open gap now that all the strawberry guava has been removed. So 10 years out, we have, I haven't been studying this for 10 years, mind you, but there are some native species and then we do get a lot of invasive species. So it'll be interesting to look at what's happened through time. Um, And then the other site that I'm looking at is a grassroots restoration, the Manoa Cliffs Restoration. If you're ever in Hawaii, I recommend checking it out. It's easy trail to hike and a great, easy way to see native forest. But every Sunday, a group of volunteers goes out and restores an area. A former grad student in our department saw there were a lot of natives and was able to make the case for getting a fence around the small six acre plot. And since then, it's been about 10 or 15 years People just go out every week and weed and outplant things that are already in the site and are doing incredible work. And That's so I'm awesome. using it to try and help them understand how well they're doing with regeneration of native plants and also to look at outside of the fence. Are non-native birds taking seeds outside of the fence? And do we see any natives regenerating outside where it's cinnamon, ileocarpus, angustifolia, the blue marble tree, coffee stands? I mean, pretty much just so many non-natives making up the forest just immediately outside of the fence
0: it just sounds like it's probably like a bulk bin at a a nursery where you just got all those like tropical clippings that are you know now global in their distribution they just ended up being able to grow outside in hawaii surprise um yeah yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah. so it really is kind of like a grab bag in terms of non-natives um but that's kind of where I fit in with this whole thing, just trying to understand forest regeneration and conservation and what can we do to facilitate it. And I do feel the need to mention, because this might be interesting for listeners and maybe a positive note in our otherwise sad <laughs> political climate. Um, this project is funded through the Department of Defense, the Strategic Environmental Research and Development Programme. Huh. So, we're on our final year, our fourth year. So, like I said, publications abound. And there is a push for military to be conserving the lands and mitigating for the damage that they've done here in Hawaii. It's a bit of an interesting story and sad because the government was sued for not protecting federally endangered species here. But mm-hmm. there is a push for the Department of Defense and the Army in particular to manage their lands better. So, a lot of this funding comes from how can we help them manage on a budget? Right, so I do want to put the note that not it's not complete doom and gloom on the government
0: it yeah, still cares yeah. in
1: certain facets
0: well it's there's no real simple uh answer to a lot of these issues and it, it's it's almost like you know hindsight's always twenty twenty and where do you go in a system like Hawaii like you said, where it's quick to be that invasives are outnumbering natives it's it's just a mess and you know, without dedicated people like yourselves, dedicated restoration volunteers, dedicated people at the all, all levels of involvement, you know, nothing gets done, and then we're we're worse off than we were before. So it is important to mention these moments where there is some sort of optimism or, uh, you know, just a, a silver lining to, to things we normally get kind of doom and gloom about because, you know, you get too depressed and you're just going to walk away from a situation which can sometimes feel hopeless, but maybe isn't.
1: I completely agree. And I really, that's my one, I think, piece of advice for people is to just try to find the optimism and everything. Moving to Hawaii was amazing because so many people care about the natural resources and it may not have always been the case. I think for a lot of people, maybe it has, but you get a lot of um, local people engaging with you. Like I can have a conversation on the bus about what I do and um, the amount of work that gets done on limited resources in Hawaii. I just I can't speak enough of the people and their dedication <laughs> here. Yeah. And when all said and done, I think that's something to just feel good about at the end of the day.
0: No, that is that is really cool <laughs> that you can get on a public bus. I mean, even here in Illinois, where I think the native plant contingent and the conservation contingent is huge and really thriving, You know, I don't think I could get on the bus most of the time and have people understand where I'm coming from on a lot of these issues. So to know that even just the casual member of the community – you know, might take a little bit more vested interest, especially on the plant level, above all else, because without these forests, you know, what else, what else do you have to conserve if all of the habitat, which is the forest, goes away? Right. So, I mean, obviously, publications abound, we don't want to ruin any spoilers or anything like that. But, uh, you know, is there a silver lining in your research? Are you seeing some hopeful, uh, you know, picking up the slack, so to speak, with some of these non-native species of birds? And, you know, how do you think forest structure is going to change 50, 100 years out? Who?
1: The last yeah. question's a loaded one. Um, yeah. But there is optimism. And I think the battle, not even a battle, I think the part that's hard as we work in conservation is we want to be as pure as possible. There's very much a fundamental way of doing things, right? We just want to go back historically. And. As a lot of people are saying in the restoration literature, that's not possible. And it's really difficult figuring out, well, where in history do you go back? What's what's the baseline? Um, And here in Hawaii, where we've had so many extinctions, um, is there a baseline that we can really go back to? And the answer, to some extent, I don't think is yes. Um, I think we're always going to have to be managing to some extent. But we are finding that non-native birds can disperse things um, that are native. So I do think there's a silver lining in that. We do see smaller seeded natives being dispersed. Um, But it's not as simple as, well, great, we can, you know, everything's perfect. We can rely on these (laughs) non-native birds because they're also still dispersing invasive seeds and non-native seeds. And Uh. so the take-home message, while it's maybe not lackluster and like really exciting, is a reminder that things are complicated in ecology. And the second you go to this community level... And start noticing that, oh, it's not a perfect frugivore. It doesn't 100% eat this. And sometimes it'll eat this. And, oh, no. Like, things get overwhelming <laughs> really fast. And um, not everything's negative and not everything's positive. So going forward, we're going to have to pick and choose our battles wisely. Mm-hmm. And every scientist says this. There will always be a call for new, more ongoing research. So we do know that they're not doing all negative. But the question now is... What does that mean and how can we utilize them? So I'm gonna pull the example of rats in Hawaii, um, as where it gets complicated. So rats, I was describing how they depredate the seeds, they depredate the birds, they rapidly reproduce, so keeping their population down so hard. All of these negative things, and there's been research showing that they can disperse things like our lobeliads which is a positive, right? right? If they eat that seed, it's going to come out, it's pooped, and it's going to be fine. So picking and choosing our battles, since we know all these negative things, well, they're not the best thing to have in a forest, even though they can have positive influences. So as we go through and remove them, we now have to be sure to make up for those services they may have been providing. Well, I don't necessarily think removing our non-native birds will be that drastic, right? I kind of think we want to <laughs> keep them. Um, and find other ways just because we don't have anything to help us disperse seeds. Otherwise we need to understand their range of effect on plant species um, and the native species. So understanding their whole role will be important moving forward. Yeah. Um, but there is the positive lining that they do disperse seeds. And depending on what my current experiments demonstrate, if dispersal turns out to be important for our native plants, they're definitely worth keeping around for a little bit, um, to help us out.
0: Well, I mean, in, in the short of it, you've just described the, the, the epitome of what it means to be an ecologist and to, you know, my advice to people is that if you want clear cut, decisive answers to things, ecology isn't for you then, (laughs) um, you know, it is this giant gray area and there's trade-offs and you've just described a couple of them right there. But I really like that you kind of went away from that language of saying battle and more into kind of the nuances of, it's going to take management, it's going to take players, and it's going to take ongoing research, and it really kind of comes down to what do we value? What do we as a society value? What do we as a community value? And how many people can you garner around such issues? Because without getting the public interested and getting them kind of invested in it, uh, you know, where does the rest of this fall into line? And and especially in a system like Hawaii, where if you've lost something long-term, Uh, you know, it might actually mean that the community needs to get involved to keep these species on the landscape if, for say, birds or rats just really aren't picking up the slack that we need them to.
1: Exactly. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) for me, these are ongoing issues all the time, I would say, these nuances. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that even as scientists when we're reading publications because everybody wants to make the case that this is the best research on this topic right now. And while that's true, we lose sight of like, oh, well that's the population level. What if we go to community? Oh, that's one community. What if we look at that community over there? Like how much of this is applicable across the system? And it's, it's tricky to extrapolate what we know to other sites and other areas. Um, And here in Hawaii, where our relationship with managers, I think is pretty good. Um, And we're trying to communicate results there's always that like tinge of it, like, well, that's what I saw here. I think it's worth trying, but it could not (laughs) work. Right. Um, and it's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, so moving forward with my career, I'd like to strengthen that relationship. Um, I think management worldwide have great intentions and great opportunities for grad students and professors to get involved and actually do the work of studying what their treatments are. And I'd like to see that furthered for forest restoration and management to try and bridge those two gaps so we have hard answers of what works and what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, yeah. We definitely need to get the uh, practitioners and the scientists and even the horticulturists all in the same room because that's the only way we're going to get out of this with the most species intact. Yeah, but. Yeah. So, I mean, where, where do you see yourself going now? I mean, is this, is, is Hawaii the system you think you've fallen in love with and want to stick with, or do you want to be able to apply your, your management and your, your applications and your, your research abilities elsewhere?
1: Um, another great question. I <laughs> do miss the Eastern deciduous forest and I miss Appalachia. It's just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like seasons. There's that that's home for me. Um, So moving forward, I'd like to be able to go back to that system, but I'd like to be able to stay working, I think, in island biology to some extent. And this is just totally one of those huge dreams, and we'll see what happens um, (laughs) with the job market. But it'd be nice to have the best of both worlds and look at things from both perspectives, because tropical systems and temperate systems do vary, but so much stays the same that it would just be interesting to continue to work in both and have the opportunity to make those I don't want to say comparisons but to make those observations as to what things actually apply to forests in all systems and what things are tropical and what things are temperate
0: well totally I mean it sounds like you're on the right path to doing something uh, akin to that but like you said the future is The future in the now is now. So uh, if people want to find out more about what you're doing here and now and and looking forward, uh, you know, all these publications that are that are going to be coming out of your work, how do you recommend they reach out to you? So
1: um, for the overall project that should be that we're working on publications for now, that's the Hawaii Vine project. And you can find it on Facebook. So Hawaii and then V-I-N-E. Vertebrate introductions and novel ecosystems is what that stands for. And cool. so you can like us on Facebook and updates for that project are there um, for getting in contact with me. You can find me on Twitter. You can see my webpage from there, or you can just email me at H R U S K A dot Amy at gmail.com. And Absolutely. I'm happy to, I love talking about my research and I <laughs> love talking about plants and forests and plant animal interactions. So
0: well, I can attest to that because this is uh, a product of our Twitter conversation. So I will put up links to all of those. And thank I really you. thank you for taking the time out of your work to talk with us. I think uh, I speak for everyone listening when I say we wish you the best of luck. And we very much look forward to seeing what, you can, uh, what you've can, what you contributed to this, this uh, big interdisciplinary project.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I feel like I've made it as a botanist by being oh, on the geez. show.
0: It's Um, such a weird thing to hear on my end of things as I'm just sitting here, but I I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) I'm sure it is, but I think the work that you do is fantastic for helping with plant blindness and getting the word out there. So I feel like, yeah, I feel
0: pretty legit. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, have a great day. (laughs) You too. It must be a bittersweet kind of existence in Hawaii, especially as an ecologist uh my heart goes out to amy having to deal with invasive species on that level but she's doing great work and finding out some very interesting things i for one look forward to all the publications that are going to come from her research i thank her for taking the time to talk with us i'm sure her workload is intimidating to say the least but again glad to see someone like that out in the field making a difference in the world i hope you enjoy this podcast again subscribe to and review it if you have not Also, stickers are still for sale inDefenseOfPlants.com slash shop. I thank everyone that uh, blew up the stickers in the last couple of weeks. We're going to make a nice sizable donation in the next month or so to the north american orchid conservation center and i know they appreciate it so again indefensiveplants.com shop buy a sticker 50 percent of every purchase goes to orchid conservation efforts here in north america so it's for a good cause and finally youtube.com slash indefensiveplants go check out our videos we got a lot more on the horizon a lot of really exciting developments in that regard so make sure you're subscribing to those youtube.com slash indefensiveplants other than that i hope you have a great week adios everyone